This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Would implementing a ranked balloting system be costly and complex? Would it drive down voter turnout? That's uh, a report that Thorpe politicians uh, received the other day. Uh, their uh, city clerk uh, did some research and some preparation into this. Now, this is all to do with the fact that the provincial government uh, some time ago uh, gave uh, municipalities here in Ontario the opportunity and the option of, of going to a ranked balloting system as opposed to the current system we have right now, which is what they call first-past-the-post. You know, whoever gets the most uh, votes, uh, well, that's the winner. Uh, but they say it would uh, it's not. It's just too complex and too frustrating and uh, and probably would confuse voters. Now, Thorold's not alone here uh, because no one else in this province has, has taken the bit on this one and and suggested that we should maybe move to a different voting system, which is rather interesting, uh, especially because the Prime Minister himself, uh, Justin Trudeau, made a, a campaign promise, of course, uh, during that last federal election that said that would be the last time the Canadians voted with that current system. And uh, he, uh, in his comments in uh, some of these town halls he's been having, is uh, suggesting that he would prefer a, a ranked balloting system, not unlike what's being suggested here. So why are people so reticent to get involved in this? Why haven't other communities jumped onto this? And for that matter, why has the federal government kind of dragged their heels on this? Let's uh, bring uh, Peter Grafe into the conversation, professor of political science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Peter, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure. Uh, we've, we've talked about this for a long, long time now. There's a, a referendum in Ontario a couple of elections ago to, to perhaps move to a different kind of voting system, too. What, uh, what's, what's the problem? Why, why is there so much pushback on this, Peter, every time somebody raises this issue? Well, I think for most people, it's about, you know, number 99 in their list of 100 things that are motivating them when they go to vote, <laughs> the way you vote. Uh, I mean, it's important because uh, if we changed uh, the way we counted votes, uh, we would have a different uh, set of people representing us. So, I mean, it is important in terms of what our votes are translated into, uh, but uh, it's not top of line for most people. And uh, for a lot of people, it's something that's pretty complex. And so... Uh, in many cases, they'd rather stick with something they know than to try something new. Let's let's talk a little bit about the rank balloting system because there there are some other options too. Of course, there's you know, proportional representation and things of this nature. But but rank balloting seems to be uh, kind of the flavor of the month. It seems to be the one that the prime minister is 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 in favor of, uh, and it's the one that was being proposed at least uh, by uh, the provincial government when they went on there. Uh, talk a little bit about how that system would work. Well, I mean, the idea uh, of rank balloting that uh, the, the municipalities can take on uh, is that uh, when you vote, rather than just putting an X beside one name, you'd actually make a list of preferences. So you'd say, this is my first choice, this is my second, this is my third. And if at the end of counting the votes, no one got more than 50% of the votes in terms of first choices, then they would take the votes of the last place candidate and say, okay, well, this person, you know, only got like 2% of the votes, but uh, who would those people's second choices be? And they'd keep going until one of the candidates got 50% of the votes. So, I mean, in Hamilton, uh, I guess it was just last year, we had a by-election in Ward uh, 7, I mm-hmm. believe. Uh, That's right. Where the winner won with 19.7% of the total votes cast. And so, in a situation like that, you might say, well, a ranked ballot system would give that person a bit more legitimacy because whoever would have won that would have could have said, well, at a certain point, I got to 50%. It's not just one in five people who voted. Uh, now get to you know have chosen who the, the the member of city council is, and and it was Donna Skelly that won that election with as you say just over nineteen percent of the vote. She may well have won it if this system had been in place. It just would have been a little more complex to actually get to that point. Then 
Yeah, and uh, in that way, she would also then have a bit more legitimacy in the sense that she could say, yeah, I mean, I did get to 50%. Uh, I was actually people's, you know, the closest you could say to the people's majority choice in this riding, as opposed to having people say, well, you only got 19% of the vote, and how does that give you a lot of legitimacy compared to someone who got just 18.6 or something like that? So, in a way, uh, rank balloting, one of the things uh, why people uh, support it is that uh, they feel that it gives a bit more legitimacy to the outcome. It ensures that whoever's elected at a certain point can speak to having the support of at least 50% uh, of the people in the riding. Although, I mean, again, if you're putting together people's you know, second and third choices, it's a bit like if you go to the restaurant and they don't have the first two things you order and then you get something, did you really choose that? <laughs> you know? but, but it does give that legitimacy. I mean, I think the other reason we're talking about it now uh, is that there was a big push in Toronto after Rob Ford got elected mm-hmm. uh, to try and make sure that any anti-Rob Ford vote in the next mayoral election uh, wouldn't get split. And so uh, the way that the ranked ballot would work, of course, is that if you had three or four people running against Rob Ford, uh, but they were really anti-Rob Ford candidates, probably one of them would end up you know, beating him in the final round. But uh, if you just had first pass a post, Rob Ford getting 40% uh, would do very well if, say, John Tory and, and Olivia Chow split the vote. I don't have the numbers here in front of me from the last municipal election here, but uh, had this system be put in place, uh, it probably would not have had a dramatic impact on on the outcome of of the municipal election here in Hamilton, uh, because I think it's something like 75% of the people that got reelected, and all of them did. Uh, got more than fifty percent of the vote, uh, which which is kind of unusual. But so, are, are we overthinking this, Peter? That, that people are thinking, "Oh my God, this is going to be this huge dramatic change, and there's everybody's going to get blown out of their job, and it's going to be a brand new council, and it's complex, and it's 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 not really that complex for the voter, is it?" No, I don't think so. I mean, most people at some point in their lives have to do a ranked list of preferences. Right. So, uh, I mean, with the, the federal electoral reform, they had this, you know, mydemocracy.ca, and uh, some of the questions seem to be indicating, well, that if you had to rank a ballot, it would be that much more complicated than, uh, you know, just going and making an X. And it's true, it is a bit more complex, but it's certainly well within people's capacity. And I mean, we see places like Ireland uh, have a ranked ballot, and they have a lower uh, rate of spoiled ballots than we do in Canada, where you just have to mark an X. So, I mean, it is a, a bit more complicated than just making an X, but certainly... Uh, it's used in a number of electoral systems, and people seem to have uh, the ability to figure it out. It hasn't pushed fewer people to go and vote. But, I mean, you are right. It, it, it's unlikely to make a huge difference in, say, uh, Hamilton politics or in city politics. I mean, where the sitting councillor has uh, a big advantage of name recognition, even if they aren't a first choice, they might be second or third. And so uh, I think uh, I don't think this would necessarily really shake up city council. Although, without any experiments in any Ontario cities, it's hard to, to, to know whether that's going to be true or not. But my, my, my gut instinct is that it wouldn't have a huge impact in changing who we end up electing or uh, reducing the incumbency advantage, which is, I think, a real problem in our elections. One of the things they do say, though, that one of the advantages that they t- seem to tell with this, though, Peter, is that uh, it may encourage more people to, to actually get involved. I mean, maybe one of the reasons why some the incumbents here have such a wide margin of victory is because oftentimes they're only running against one or two people, uh, as opposed to uh, the by-election in which, I, I, think there were, I forget, there were 25 or 30 people running. I don't remember, some outlandish number. But at least if everybody thinks they got a shot at it, well, that's probably going to reduce those margins of victory. Uh, you might hope, but, uh, I mean, it was one set of Marvin Kaplan, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, uh, because it was before my time, that he would give indications that he might not be running to encourage a lot of people to put their names forward, 
uh, because he knew who was likely to come out to vote for him. So provided the rest of the vote was split among a lot of candidates, he would do well in getting reelected. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but it would be a good strategy. Sure. Uh, uh, so there's a way in which having more candidates, uh, you know, might take some votes away from the existing councillors, but in other ways, if those councillors know who's voting for them and having been through a number of elections and having kept records of people who said they liked what they were doing, uh, there may be better pressed in terms of a uh, better place to get their vote out and, and do better when you have more competition rather than less. And, and let's talk about actually the impact it's going to have on voters. Uh, and, and I agree with you totally, by the way, that we do this every day in our lives. You know, we rank everything. You know, I'm, I'm a Tiger Cat fan, but if the Tiger Cats aren't in the Grey Cup, I pick a second team. You know, I'm going to cheer for anybody but Ottawa or whatever the case might be. So we do this constantly. And as you say, you do it at a restaurant. And, Sorry, we don't have that. Yeah, we're out of that or something. You make a second choice. We, but we, we seem to hesitate to do that politically. But I, I, we do it in our minds. But we don't seem to want to go to the to the trouble of actually doing this when we go to vote. But it's not that difficult. And and I guess the other side of that coin, Peter, is you don't have to select four or five. If you strongly feel that that Peter Grafe is the the guy that I want to vote for, you can just vote one person on the ballot. They don't say you have to vote for three or four other choices. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in some systems they might insist you do, but you certainly don't have to do it that way. I mean, I think we we've seen city clerks across the province not being that keen on changing the system. Uh, and I think part of it uh, is related not to the complexity of marking the ballot, but the complexity of counting the ballots. And so on the one hand, you have municipalities like Hamilton that have invested in uh, electronic uh, ballot readers, uh, you know, which are just kind of like, you know, Scantron sheets you might have had in a high school multiple test, test choice test, some sort of, you know, modern version. They may not work very well for having to do ranked ballots. So, I mean, that may be one aspect is the cost. The other is that counting the ballots is a bit more complicated because it's not just everyone sending in the tallies from their individual polls. You'd have to figure out, okay, well, then who's last overall across the whole uh, poll and then knock them off and redistribute. So it's, you know, it's not something that's done instantly. You know, uh, uh, you know in a, our municipal elections, when they close the polls, they hit a button on the machine and they get a ticker tape which says, you know, a candidate X gets this and that and the other, and it's really fast to add up. You know, presumably, I mean, in Thorold, where the the clerk was opposed to this change, you know, she said it might take a month. I find that a bit hard to believe. But it yeah, might come on. It might take, a, you know, a day or two, uh, which is, you know, not in our traditions. But I suspect most people, uh, you know, except for the candidates themselves, aren't waiting with so much bated breath that they couldn't wait 24 or 36 hours to find out who the winner was. Yeah, I mean, you know, in Europe, I mean, I know in France and some of the European countries, I mean, they do have runoff elections. and those They, they don't take a month. Uh, so I, I think there's a little bit of fear-mongering going on, because I've heard the same talk here in Hamilton. I mean, to, to Hamilton City Council, of course, gave this a thumbs down right off the bat as soon as the province announced it and said, ah, it's too complex and we don't think we can get the system up in time, and just kind of shoved it off to the side. So it's not going to happen here anytime soon. But I, I just think we may be, may be characterizing this as far more complex than it really needs to be. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I mean, in reading uh, the comments of the clerk in Thorold, I mean, it struck me as someone who thought it was a bad idea and then was looking to find any argument against it and maybe kind of exaggerating some features of them. I mean, I think we should admit that it will be more complicated for clerks to run elections and that for municipalities that have invested in particular uh, ballot technologies, uh, you know, machines to vote and so on, uh, there would be costs involved. So I think we should have an honest discussion about is it worth 
I mean, is it even a good system to, to replace the existing one with for municipal elections? And, you know, even if it was, is it worth the price? But uh, in most cases, the, the clerks have been so opposed that the councils have just said, fine, we'll, we'll stick with it, rather than, you know, opening it up and saying, well, you know, could we change how we vote? And even if we don't change how we vote, uh, voter turnout is very low. Are there things we could be doing to engage citizens more in choosing who sits on city council? And are there ways that we can deal with the problem? Of course, it's not a problem for the city councillors, but uh, it may be a problem for the cities themselves to have such a high rate of people getting re-elected all the time, uh, making it very hard for uh, new voices to show up at city council tables. What I find frustrating about this <laughs> is that, and we saw this with the electoral reform package that uh, that uh, the McGinney government tried to present a couple of years ago, and they put it out. There was a referendum on that one, as we recall, and it was pretty soundly defeated. But should elected officials actually be making these decisions, Peter? I mean, th- there's an argument to be made here that there's a certain self-interest in maintaining uh, the, the current system because that's how you got your job. And as you mentioned, with the incumbents, they know where their voter support is, and they, they know pretty much exactly where it's going to come and who's going to vote and who's not going to vote. Uh, I, I can't think of too many elected officials right now that would come forward and say, yeah, I'm willing to put my job on the line to try a new system. I, they're going to want the status quo just about every time. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think that's why in the provinces that have moved to referendums, it was usually after some kind of citizens' assembly, right? So in Ontario, they pick people at random to sit and, uh, you know, sit around for a few weekends to hear about different systems and debate what would work or not work, and uh, they came up with a proposal. I mean, municipally, with the ward reform, I think we've seen our city council act dishonorably in, in, in uh, engaging a consultant and then, in a sense, not accepting the report. But uh, there the appeal is to the Ontario Municipal Board if citizens feel that uh, the council hasn't acted properly. So, I mean, I think there is a really obvious uh, potential conflict of interest, and it would be nice uh, if they thought of ways of dealing with it in terms of forms of consultation, open discussion, uh, respecting the uh, the reports of consultants. You know, they gave them uh, a certain order of work. They gave them parameters in which they're meant to come up with the system. Well, then respect the the professionalism uh, of the people putting together. So, I mean, there are processes that could be followed, uh, but it is very difficult for our uh, municipal officials to, and also provincially, uh, to respect that. And I think we saw that federally as well, where we had a parliamentary commission come forward with a report and, and the government really sneer at it rather than taking it seriously. Well, because of, there's always going to be some sense of subjectivity, isn't there? I, I know this happens in the States uh, on a pretty regular basis. The Congress there, uh, dis- they, they actually draw the lines, of course, for the, the congressional districts there. And uh, But the Republicans, of course, uh, as you know, Peter, uh, have been accused of in the last little while as gerrymandering. In other words, redrawing those lines so that the voter support is going to be there uh, for them to get reelected time and time again. Uh, and, and the same sort of thing possibly could happen here. And, and you're right. I mean, with the boundaries, uh, the ward boundary issue here in, in the city of Hamilton, for the council to actually take this report and say, never mind, we'll redraw these. We've got some suggestions on this. They shouldn't have any say in this. They shouldn't have any say in electoral reform either, because I, I, you're right. I think there's a blatant po- conflict of interest here. Yeah, I mean, in the, in fairness to the councillors, um, I mean, I'd agree that there's a blatant conflict of interest. Uh, there aren't a lot of uh, off-the-shelf solutions for you know municipalities in terms of how you'd set up a system to, to discuss this uh, and to do it properly. Uh, certainly, around uh, ward uh, boundaries, I mean, there are consultants in Ontario who are you know expert at this. They understand the law. 
they understand the regulations and, and they do, I think, a good job within, you know, the parameters that they're given by city council. I mean, that's a model that I think worked well for the city if they'd only accepted the report and acted on it rather than questioning it. Mm-hmm. But uh, on electoral systems themselves, it probably becomes a bit more complicated because, uh, you know, there's a variety of different uh, choices that have to be made. Uh, many of them haven't been experimented in the municipal level in Ontario. Um, so it's hard to think of a good process short of the provincial government maybe taking more of a leadership role in in talking about what cities can and could do uh, to engage with some of these reforms. Given the fact, though, Peter, that most municipal councils, and like you say, like there's 444 municipalities in Ontario, none of these guys have, have opted for a change in the voting system right now for the, a, a number of the reasons that you and I have been dis- discussing over the next little while, or the last little while, rather. Plus, you've got the prime minister who also would like to see a change in the federal voting system, and we've seen the opposition that he's run into, and not just from the opposition parties, but... Uh, from from public opinion polls and, frankly, from some people within his own party. Uh, is this ever going to happen, or is this always going to just be some subject that always seems to come up at every election? It's it's the great it's the great thing to say, but nobody seems to want to act on it. Is, is that the, the conundrum we find ourselves in? Yeah, I mean, I think we are at a point of, of blockage where there's been a push for change, uh, a number of referendums that were lost, uh, but not necessarily a lot of confidence in the existing system. Uh, plus, we have, I mean, in the case of, of Trudeau, I think you're maybe being a bit kind. I think ultimately he's decided he doesn't want to see a change in the system. Yeah. He doesn't want to be seen to op- be openly breaking his promise at the same time. And and so, the, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. I mean, there the, the difference isn't ranked balloting. The, the different solution that really was put forward was a form of proportional representation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, uh, on the other hand, we see a lot more discussion of this in the past, uh, there's been pushes for proportional representation in the 1920s and the 1950s. They came, they went. Uh, we've been talking about this, I think, really for the past 15 years or so since uh, the British Columbia had their referendum on the single transferable vote. So it seems to be having more lasting power. I think people aren't happy with the existing system, but I don't think they've been quite convinced yet that they need to change uh, and, and adopt another one. With that in mind, then, is this uh, something that, uh, I mean, I've got a couple of emails even this morning during our conversation saying, as, as you said right off the top of the conversation here, uh, if this is not front of mind for most voters, uh, and, and there doesn't seem to be any desire for, for elected officials to get in this. Is this, uh, if there's going to be a change, is it going to have to be done by a, a government that's going to impose this and say, by the way, this is the way we're voting from now on? Uh I mean, I think there's many people who feel that way, and I mean, certainly we never had a referendum to uh, accept our current systems of voting. Uh, having said that, I mean, there's a legitimacy problem uh, if a government goes unilaterally. I mean, I think the, the formula that was used federally, where you had a multi-party committee uh, reflecting more or less the shares of votes that parties got in the last election, was actually a good way of, of finding a way to come to a solution that would be consensual. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, New Zealand did go to a referendum when they changed their voting system in the 1980s, but others, such as Japan, have changed their system without a referendum. So, uh, you know, it remains to be seen whether the referendum would have to be uh, the approach. Uh, I mean, I think the people who would like to see a change have begun to realize that voting, you know, voting on simply the change is generally not very successful in a referendum because it's difficult to explain what's going on. So in some ways you'd want to actually have a specific choice between the existing uh, status quo system and, uh, you know, some alternative as, as uh, a way of framing the referendum so people could choose kind of straight up what they prefer. Um, we saw that with a ranked ballot in Prince Edward Island in a referendum back in the fall where people, in fact, did vote for uh, a proportional system, 
although with a very low rate of turnout uh, in the referendum. So the, the government has decided not to uh, honor the referendum. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. What's going to happen with the Claremont access? It's been shut down since November, of course. The downbound lanes have anyway. Uh, because of the collapse of that wall, um, which actually started back in 2012, I guess. Well, they got an update of Public Works about this yesterday, and uh, we're talking big bucks to try to get this thing fixed. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dan McKinnon, and of course, the uh, manager of Public Works for the City of Hamilton. Dan, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Morning, Bill. This is, uh, if I could uh, paraphrase Mr. Trump, huge, uh, the, the repair bill for this thing. But uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about where you are with this project right now and what needs to be done. Well, we're uh, we're still on target. Uh, we're, we're optimistic that we'll be able to have all the the works that are necessary right now done by the end of February, and we're looking to open up the downbound lanes by then. But essentially, what's been going on uh, since the start here is just in, in inspecting all of the panels to see which ones are uh, stable enough to remain in place, and for those that aren't, we're going to remove them. And then once we've done that, we um, we have to scale the uh, the rock face behind it and. The challenge with this is it's very laborious. There's a lot of handwork here for anybody who's uh, traveled the uh, the access and looked over to see what's going on. You'll see that uh, basically the guys are you know, rappelling um, to uh, to go on down and do the inspections. They have to, in a lot of cases, cut the edges of the panels and then they have to be lifted out by a crane. So, um, you know, there's about a half a dozen fellows working there, but it's it's just laborious because it's a lot of handwork. And because we, you know, we we had to do the inspections to identify which areas were stable, and we felt we could leave which ones need to come down, and then other areas we're we're going to leave in place, but we do have to stabilize them and reinforce them a little bit. So it's just a, it's just a time-consuming process. So, um, uh, but we're optimistic we'll have uh, everything done by the end of February. Um, we will be then bringing forward a report to council, hopefully in April, uh, that talks to uh, the longer-term strategy with respect to the escarpment face at the, at the Claremont access. And kind of a longer-term plan because we know uh, we, we need to have we need to develop kind of a, a master plan for that section so that any future work is done uh, in a proactive, planned way as opposed to just letting it fail again and then uh, and then uh, having to respond in the way that we're doing right now. Dan, let's go back to the beginning. What what actually caused this? I mean, anybody who has ever built a retaining wall on their property, it's a much smaller scale, obviously, would understand that over the passage of time, I mean, these things tend to, to give in. And uh, is, is the earth pushing these things back? Is that what's going on? Well, I, I think, generally speaking, there's two things that are at, at play here. One is just the condition of the wall itself. These things were installed in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a galvanized steel that's there. So I, I think most people would appreciate, leave a piece of galvanized steel out for about 40 or 50 years and watch what happens to it. So the wall itself is, is deteriorating and starting to fail. In addition to that, you have a lot, lot of dynamic forces in behind the wall. Uh, you have the freeze-thaw cycle. Uh, anybody who's lived in Hamilton for any length of time would know that you can see water exiting the face of the escarpment all year round, so it will freeze and thaw on a regular basis throughout the winter, and that creates pressure behind the wall. In addition to that, some areas had a lot of vegetation growing above it, so now you've got tree roots working in behind there. So I think the combination of just the, the, the physical integrity of the wall itself and all those dynamic forces behind it inevitably is going to, is going to make the wall fail. I think, um, you know, it, it's, we have lots of uh, science and lots of understanding around life cycles with respect to roads and bridges and sewers and water mains and those types of things, but this wall is pretty unique. There's a lot of communities that don't even have this. So I think, uh, to a certain extent, we've kind of learned a lot over the last number of years around what the expected life cycle of a facility like this can be, um, and now we need to get out ahead of that. 
you know, we, it's just Hamilton. We, I mean, we call it the mountain. I mean, it's an escarpment, but uh, it poses challenges that other cities don't have, obviously. We want to get up and down there, and, uh, you know, you had to blast, you had to drill, you had to build these these uh, escarpment passages, and, and there are a number of them, of course, across the, the city right now. Is is, this, is Claremont unique? I mean, it seems as each one of them seems to have their own uh, unique properties, Dan. Uh, I think the answer is yes and no. I think the thing about the Claremont, and uh, not unlike the Sherman Cut, where it begins to descend the mountain, you have a sheer face there, yeah. just because we needed to build the road very close to the edge. And then as you descend, you get further away, and you have a bit more of a slope there that uh, that, that kind of looks after itself, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it. But but where these uh, accesses uh, begin to descend the mountain, there was a lot of sheer faces there, and that's really where, where, we're, where we're struggling to find um, where we're going to have to find a better uh, a better way to deal with that. When you when you can uh, kind of slope things back, then you can manage it a lot better. But where you have those sheer faces, um, and again, I, I try to remind people, we're, we're, I don't think we have a concern. We don't have any evidence that we're looking at kind of a massive failure. It's just the steady, uh, um, you know, uh, loose rock falling on a regular basis just along the face that really creates the hazard for the traveling public. And that happens on an ongoing basis. I mean, you know, we may not see falling rocks on, uh, for instance, on the Sherman Access uh, very much anymore, but they're still there. I mean, that's why the concrete barriers are there to, to provide that, uh, I guess, that buffer uh, in that part of the uh, the escarpment. Is, is that what's going on here, too? Yeah, essentially it's the same thing. Um, you know, the tactic of using the bin walls was to stop anything from even starting to fall, um, where when it's just the open face, it can it can start and it can continue to erode. So um, the the bin walls themselves, they haven't necessarily been holding back the escarpment, although it may appear that way. What they've really been doing is just protecting the face the face of the escarpment from the effects of erosion and and the freeze thaw cycle over the years. Yeah, uh, well, the number of uh, underground water passages, and I mean, we call it the city of waterfalls for a reason, and, and that's one of the reasons why, because there's water flowing all over the place. We're, I, I learned a little bit of this. It was very instructive. I had uh, one term way back when where I was on the Conservation Authority, sat on the board there. And uh, you learn an awful lot about some of the challenges that you and Public Works uh, have to do. And it's not just with the Claremont access, but it's with a lot of other roads in this area, too. Uh, there's, there's a lot of water in this area, and, and we don't see it all the time, but it's there. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, some of it's surface water, so it could be streams that are, you know, making their way over the edge of the escarpment, but a lot of it is groundwater, and uh, uh, I think most people don't appreciate, unless they have, uh, you know, a kind of a background or maybe lived in, uh, grew up on a farm or something, but groundwater, uh, there's a tremendous amount of ground, groundwater in, in the ground, um, and uh, it's difficult to predict where it's going to be, it's difficult to track where it is, uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of, uh, it's a science, but it's also a bit of art, and, and it's everywhere, so, so trying to kind of find a way to live in harmony with that is really the challenge, you know. Um, I, I think we're starting to see that some of this big infrastructure that we built back in the, you know, the 40s, 50s, all the way up to the 80s, where you're trying to hold back nature, um, I think we have to rethink that. We have to find ways to kind of uh, live kind of in harmony with it, because uh, uh, there, there are times when you can when you can hold it back and you can master it, but there's other times you just got to find a way to work with it. So uh, I think that's yeah, what's going on in the escarpment right now, or the uh, Claremont, is, is a really good example of that. Well, we saw that, obviously, with the design of the Red Hill part of the uh, the expressway project, didn't we, where there was, a, 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 I think, a real effort there, an attempt to, to simply you know work with the nature that's there, uh, with the creek bed and, and with a number of other things, as opposed to slapping concrete and, and, and barriers there. But but the Claremont is what it is at this stage, though, Dan. Is, is, is there any discussion right now about perhaps doing this in a different way? Is there, a, I mean, as you mentioned, it was the 1970s and that thing was finally constructed uh here in 2017 is there is there a better engineering approach to take to this kind of problem 
I think there's a, a variety of options that we're going to be exploring. And for anybody who's traveled down the um, the 403 out of Ancaster down to uh, to Main Street, when you look uh, along the escarpment there, you can see that the MTOs put some very heavy gauge um, uh, kind of chain link fabric along mm-hmm. the uh, the south side there, and that that's kind of an attenuation device for any rock that will fall. So I think that is an example of where we accept that there's going to be rock fall, but we're, to, we're, we're putting up a barrier to catch it so that it can't make its way out to the road. The Claremont and the bin walls was to stop it from happening in the first place. So I think uh, one of the options that we're, we're likely going to be looking at is if we're going to allow pieces of rock to fall, how do you control that fall so that it doesn't make its way out to the road and it doesn't create a public, uh, a public uh, health and safety issue? So, it, it, so what we're doing now, what you're doing now in, in the next six or eight weeks now to try to get this thing road ready is, is really, I'm not trying to be patronizing, but it's a Band-Aid solution. It's not going to be the final solution to this thing. Yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's, we're trying to stabilize this, and, and it's a short-term solution to stabilize things, make it safe so we can reopen the road, recognizing that a longer-term uh, plan has to be developed for what's going to be the long-term approach to dealing with the escarpment face along the Claremont. So with that in mind, then that gives you or buys you some time, I guess, to come up with a better plan or an alternative way of, of, of designing something. Like, as you mentioned, maybe the, the, what they do in the 403, I obviously drive that every morning, so I see that. But, but is, is that the, uh, the solution at this stage? It, it may be the solution for part of it. Uh, so the, the one benefit we have with the, the 403 is there's some distance between the edge of the road and the rock face. So that, that's an example where that kind of an attenuation device will work. But where you, uh, you know, when you come down the Claremont and you make the turn kind of right at the top of the hill, the, the face is right there. Uh, there's actually a concrete wall there. So I, I suspect that when the engineers look at it, there, there may be one or two or three or even four different tactics that they may use depending on the distance between the edge of the asphalt and the rock face. So, um, and that's, that, that, that takes some thought and it's going to take some, uh, you know, some solid engineering. So um, I think they may use a variety of uh, tactics to, to deal with it, depending on the proximity of the, uh, the rock face to the edge of the traveled portion of the road. What about the other escarpment passages? Why have we not seen these same sorts of problems manifest themselves on those? I, I know there were some problems with the Sherman Axis many years ago, but not lately. Well, I, I'd like to say that that's probably because our staff have been proactive. Um, we have an annual budget allocation of almost a half a million dollars just to deal with the escarpment face. So, We've proactively done scaling along the Sherman access. Uh, we've got uh, proactive works happening on the on the Beckett Road access right now as well. So, so we're out there on a regular basis trying to identify these uh, uh, these concerns ahead of time and trying to deal with them. So, the fact that uh, you know it, it doesn't make the news is, is is good news for us because we're out there proactively trying to deal with it. Um, but we do have a tremendous number of uh, escarpment accesses everywhere from. 50 Road in the east all the way to kind of Sydenham Road, uh, just, you know, uh, north of Dundas there. So, and everything in between, when, when you start to actually count up how many escarpment accesses we have, we, we have a, a quite a significant number of them. I don't have it off the top of my head, but each one of those uh, requires us to go out, be proactive, and try to make sure that we can identify any movement that's happening uh, before there's any kind of adverse uh, effect on the roadway. Now, I know you don't get involved in the politics of this, uh, but uh, where's the money going to come from? I mean, this is going to be a huge, huge bill to fix this thing. Yeah, so uh, the update we gave to committee yesterday, we, we've spent about $350,000 uh, to date just on this right now. Uh, we expect that uh, we could spend up to another 700000 on it uh, over the next uh, uh, six weeks. And um, so we may be in for as much as a million bucks just to deal with this uh, situation right now. As far as the longer-term situation, um, again, I, I wouldn't want to speculate on the cost of that. 
uh, because it will really depend on what the engineers will identify as the most effective means of dealing with this. But as part of that analysis, they always look at the cost. Uh, I mean, we can't, uh, we, we can't gold plate everything and just uh, you know, spend more money than we have. So we're going to try to find the most uh, efficient and optimized way of dealing with this over the long term. All right. With uh, every other project here, comes opportunity. I mean, this road's been shut down technically since November, really, since you shut down the downtown, down, downbound lanes of this thing. Uh, there's been some talk about installing bike lanes on the on this particular access and and others. Do you look at this as an opportunity to kind of reassess exactly what that road is going to be and how are you going to use it? Um, at this point, no. Um, there's no plans to do that. I, I mean, the bike lane would be kind of an independent discussion of this. Um, it, it has been interesting to see that, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm bold to say this out loud, uh, we haven't received a ton of complaints. Uh, I have driven down some of the other accesses in the morning, so I can see that there has been, um, there's obviously more volume going down the other accesses, and that is having an adverse effect. I think the motoring public who's been using the Claremont historically over the years has been tremendously patient with us, and we very much appreciate that. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it is a bit of a learning experience for us um, to just, to you know, think about what well, what could we do over the longer term with the Claremont? Can we maybe just reduce the number of lanes on a permanent basis? Would that help us? So all those things will be evaluated when we look to the uh, um, to, to the to what the longer term solution is going to be. The the more distance we can put between the edge of asphalt and the rock face, the better. So if uh, maybe redesigning the Claremont, that might be one of the options that we look at over the longer term as well. Well, I was going to say, it's part of a long-term solution. I mean, uh, one of the terms that gets bandied about right now is, is a road diet. In other words, shrinking the size of the road. Do you need all those lanes of traffic on that access now? Well, um, certainly it appears we can live without all of them because uh, we're, we're doing it. But it, it, now it becomes kind of a level of service issue. Um, you know, if that was going to be the permanent situation where we were not going to have any more downbound lanes, I think we'd probably get a lot more phone calls. I think people appreciate what we're dealing with right now, so they're being patient with us. But uh, definitely, we'll look at uh, we'll look at the traffic patterns there, and we'll we'll make a determination about whether or not we can uh, we can live with a kind of a narrower uh, uh, roadway there. Uh, and by the way, to that end, uh, it was 2012 when this 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 whole scenario seemed to start, uh, and there was a lane of traffic closed there for safety reasons. Uh, when you're finished at the end of February, are all lanes going to be open, or is that lane going to remain closed? No, my expectation is that lane that's been closed for the past number of years will remain closed. Um, and depending on kind of uh, our analysis, uh, probably a month from now, um, hopefully we'll be able to reopen two of the lanes. Um, but that's not uh, that's not a lock yet. We'll have to look at that at, uh, when the time comes. All right. Is, is weather a factor here? I mean, this is probably the worst time of year for this to happen. I mean, you've got outside crews out there. And, well, I don't know. It's, it's not going to be bitterly cold for the next little while. But do you anticipate that there could be delays due to weather, inclement weather? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is all handwork. These guys are uh, rappelling uh, along the side of the escarpment. You can just imagine how difficult that is. Um, but the one thing I will say, and I'm going to knock on wood here, um, the weather forecast is looking pretty good for the next week or so, and it's been tremendously uh, uh, in our favor uh, over the last couple of weeks. So would I want to be doing this in the winter if I had my choice? Absolutely not. Um, if I had to pick a winter to do it, this January has actually been pretty good. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's uh, time for the Mayor's Town Hall.
with uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, who joins us here in studio. That's the first time we've had a, a, a session this uh, this year, so Happy New Year. First happy, time we've had yeah, you back happy here. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Uh, 2017 is uh, going to be an interesting year, no it, question. In, in very many ways it is. There's an awful lot of things going on here in the city that we want to talk about. Uh, we will do phone calls in just a little while. You know the numbers, of course, 905-645-3221. Star 9900 is the toll-free number. You can reach us by email, bkelly at 900chmail.com. And on Twitter, at CHML Bill Kelly, for your tweets, and uh, we'll get the mayor to respond to those in just a couple of seconds. Listen, before we get into uh, a lot of the civic issues, well, I guess this is one, too. Uh, I want to talk about this uh, today. Uh, City of Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is one of only two mayors in North America to be shortlisted for the World Mayor 2016 Project. The shortlist uh, for the 2016 World Mayor Prize, which was released uh, October 20th of last year, Includes 15 mayors from around the world who, together with their communities, have made exceptional efforts to welcome refugees and integrate migrants into their communities. Uh, that's it's nice to be. I, I'm going to sound like we're doing the Oscar speech. It's nice to be nominated, though, isn't it? Oh well, it's it's wonderful. Caught me uh, quite by surprise. And you know what? To be uh, to be truthful, uh, the honor goes not to me, but for all the people that, uh, that opened their arms and put time and effort into uh, to making this happen out in our community. It. Uh, you know, my, my role was uh, just to embrace the idea, you know, very early on and say that uh, this is something we need to do. And, uh, you know, the rest of the work was done by many, many, many great people in our community, thousands of people, in fact, that uh, in churches and in uh, Wesley Urban Ministries and uh, all of the folks out there that did such a terrific job of actually making it happen and putting it into effect. So. Uh, you know what? Thank you, uh, thank you to the organization. I know we had a little fun with it yesterday. Uh, Mayor Nenshi in uh, in Calgary was actually brought it to my attention. I didn't know, and he was a he was an honoree in 2014. And collectively, when we get together as the big city mayors, we ask him to wear a tiara uh, <laughs> <laughs> because of that honor, just as uh, you know, a little bit of fun and uh, you know, self self deprecating, of well, course. Well, uh, knowing the mayor, he'd do it too, wouldn't he? Well, you know, and he's uh, he's an interesting uh, interesting mayor, good mayor, actually, great mayor, good fun guy to know, and uh, great sense of humor, and certainly doesn't uh, you know doesn't take these kinds of uh, you know accolades to heart. He he really believes their community wins as opposed to individual wins. So I I, I see it exactly the same way. Uh, Valentine's Day, February fourteenth, is when the uh, winners will be announced in that. So uh, we. We wish you luck yeah, and, and on behalf of everybody. Yeah, but you know, we were just uh, when I saw this this morning, we were talking about this in the newsroom a little bit earlier, and um, there was uh, obviously a, a big deal made about the fact that the refugees were coming here at the time because it was a big news story right across the ca- the country, and of course uh, Hamilton and and Burlington, our friends across the bay, also yep. uh, with uh, a contribution toward that too. But the fact that we haven't heard much about it since then kind of indicates that this is going pretty well. It is. I mean, there there have been uh, you know some challenges sure. as you might expect for, for housing, for and employment housing, uh, second language issues. Uh, you know, the kids when you meet the kids, and I've met many of them. Uh, they're they're just the happiest, thrilled, uh, and and quickly assimilating kids you could possibly imagine. Uh, some of them have enormous talents. And one one young man, young young man is a great uh, pianist. Uh, so some you know a bit of a. Bit of an ingenue, uh, you know. That's uh, you know, at twelve years old, can play just about anything, and uh, you know, came came from Iran and uh, landed here, and is now uh, you know thriving. He and his family. Uh, that's what you want to see happen. Others are are struggling a little bit more uh, because of the language issues and, and employment issues. But uh, you know, all of them are happy to be in a safe. Uh, quiet and uh, and uh, embracing and welcoming place like Canada or Hamilton. So they're uh, they're they're doing overall they're doing well. Uh, yeah, I, I talked to a number of people. Actually, Adam Oldfield that does the tech show with us here. You know, yep. you know Adam, of course, from FPM Three Marketing. And uh, 
as part of the Rotary Club, he was uh, at the Kathy Weaver School at Christmas time. Yep. And of course, a number of the uh, the children of uh, the refugee families are or in that neighborhood and in that school too. It's the first Christmas here in Canada. Yeah. It was a real thrill for them. And well, he, uh, first Christmas, first snow, first freezing rain they've ever seen. Uh, you know, there's a lot of firsts for them. And uh, you know, what a delight to watch it happen happening to them. And the smiles on their faces are infectious. I mean, that's really uh, that's really what it's all about. At the end of the day, is giving people an opportunity to have a decent, good quality of life in a safe, uh, safe and uh, welcoming environment. And, uh, you know, certainly Hamilton has uh, opened up its arms, and that's why I think we've been recognized as uh, a community that... Uh that embraces diversity and embraces uh, immigration. Exactly. Well, and, as we mentioned, uh, best of luck to uh, to you and uh, yeah. and all those involved in that program. Uh, we'll you. find out in a couple of weeks exactly who's going to win. Yep. Now, you mentioned it that you were talking to Mayor Nedge and got the big city mayors, hmm. uh, and, and I know that you, you get together on a pretty regular basis about this. And the topic that was, uh, the last time you guys talked, and I, I guess there's another meeting scheduled up in Ottawa. Uh, not too far from now, is going to be about infrastructure and the federal government's responsibility because there is a budget coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Friday, in fact, uh, heading heading uh, to Ottawa Thursday night for a, you know, a robust and long meeting, I'm sure, on Friday to talk about uh, infrastructure, uh, transit, specifically in, in affordable housing, social housing. All of them have been uh, stated priorities by this uh, this current liberal federal government, and uh, we're hoping to see uh, you know quicker a more responsive action, uh, especially on the, 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 the more recent transit file. So we've, we've, we've been given uh, transit eligibility numbers, and, you know, it was indicated that this is stimulus funding, all to be done by the end of 2018. Well, we're, we're now well, you know, starting off in 2017. We need time to be able to do this work, so we need announcements soon. So we're obviously going to be talking about uh, putting some... Uh, encouragement onto the federal government to, to move this process along a little faster or else we won't be able to meet their timelines and that's a, that's a problem right across the country. So we're, we're all keen on participating in the infrastructure programs. We understand that this is the kind of thing that uh, all municipalities across the country have been asking for for decades, in fact. And uh, they've now made assurances and promises that they're going to deliver and we're, we're hoping that they uh, do it in a timely fashion. The uh, the key word here is sustainability, uh, yep. and and I know that you've been talking about this for many many years now, as have the other mayors, because governments always come back and say, well, oh, we've uh, spent X number of dollars on on cities, but it, they're not sustainable programs. They last for a little while. Not everybody qualifies, yep. uh, and you compare that with what the United States and other G eight countries do. Uh, where there are sustainable pots of money that you know are going to be there for projects like this. That's really what you're shooting for. Absolutely. And you know what? And that really means a, a bit of a change in how, uh, you know, the income tax, uh, you know, is, is collected and distributed across the country. And you know what? Right now it's a cap and hand approach. Uh, uh, still is. Uh, you know, if the federal government says at, at flavor of the day that we're going to spend money on infrastructure, then we all get, uh, you know, charged up and start planning for infrastructure. But that's not uh, the way you, you can sustainably plan plan a community and, and a specifically a city or any rural community, quite frankly. We need to have predictability in the process so that we can actually have long-term plans. So we all have, hopefully all have, uh, great, uh, great uh, you know, asset management plans that uh, we've encouraged to do, and Hamilton's been a leader in terms of uh, developing an asset management plan, but it's hard to follow an asset management plan when you don't know where the money's coming from. So right now, we're, uh, we're basically working with two agencies, the fed, federal and provincial governments, that, uh, that offer up funding from time to time that we really can't bank on, that we, and we need more predictability in the system. So some sort of a, uh, uh, an arrangement that uh, provides revenues that grow with the economy, that, uh, that are a share of the income tax or a share of the, uh, the 
PST or the GST, uh, not unlike the gas tax that uh, that has been delivered and is is a bit more predictable than anything else that we've been able to get our hands on in terms of funding. Yeah, but that's a small little stream. I mean, it is. You, you, need, you need something a lot bigger than that. But it's a start. Are you are you optimistic though? I mean, as as, as Minister Morneau indicated that uh, that he's going to listen, uh, let, you know, he's putting pen to paper now, but his budget. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't see a significant change anytime soon. I think they've got their hands full in delivering the uh, the infrastructure promises they've made to to date. Uh, but we uh, continue to sing that, that me- say that message that uh, at some point, some government has to come up with a strategy to make predictable funding for municipalities across the country. And you know what? Big cities are where most of the services are being delivered, not to exclude rural communities. I mean, they're important and they also need funding. But uh, most people are now living in uh, in our bigger centers, and they're you know forevermore uh, you know moving and migrating into them, and uh, we need to have predictable funding. So, you know, I was I was uh, you know curious to hear the uh, the Automobile Association come back with a rating on our infrastructure and our, our roads, and giving us a C and saying you have to spend double the money that uh, you're spending now, and that. That invariably is true. We are $200 million uh, behind each and every year, some $3 billion in total in terms of our infrastructure. And uh, we need our federal and provincial partners to uh, to work with us to make it happen. So there's only one, you know, taxpayer. There's one pool of money, income tax, uh, municipal taxes, and provincial taxes. How do we apportion those so that we can pr- provide some predictability in this funding stream? Yeah, we're going to talk about that segment later on, but it's 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 instructive to, to get that information. It's not news to you because you've been talking about your infrastructure deficit for quite some time. Mm-hmm. But I, I, as I saw that story, I thought, well, you, know, you should be talking to the federal government about this, not the cities. They, You guys know what the problem is. You just need to find the money. Yeah, and, and you know, and, 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 and part B to that is there's no way you can simply go to the taxpayers and say we're going to have to pony up more for, to to do this. It's that's just not going to happen. No, I mean they, politically it's not uh, not doable. It's uh, I mean there's not a person that would uh, that would stay elected. I think that uh, when they're talking about tax increases, uh, you know what the, the 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 nice thing is that we have a federal leader today that has said uh, we're prepared to go into deficits to to get this work done at a time when the interest rates are the lowest possible. Uh, borrowing money is probably uh, the most affordable thing for governments to do right now, and and this infrastructure deficit is not going to go away. So it has to be dealt with in one manner or another. And and municipalities have some responsibility. We have to do our part as well. Uh, this year, we uh, we added another half a point on the uh, the capital budget to do a little bit more. It's not enough, in my view. We got. I think we should should be doing you know some somewhat more, but we cannot do it all, and we need our federal and provincial partners. So you'll uh, you'll meet up in Ottawa then with the other mayor. And, Ottawa uh, on, on Friday. Uh, I'm, I, I bet I'm going to get a tiara on Friday just as a forerunner to my... <laughs> I'm sure Nancy will show up with his tiara and hand it over to me. I'm not sure if it uh, fits the same way for me as it did for him. Well, there's a photo op for you. There you go. Uh, 905-645-3221, the number. Uh, B. Kelly at 900chml.com is the email. And on Twitter at chml, Bill Kelly. Your questions, your comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger with the town hall. Uh, when when we start looking at, at infrastructure, and, and you're going to be getting into some serious, uh, I know you've started before Christmas, some serious discussions, though, when you get back from Ottawa yep. uh, about uh, about the budget here locally and what needs to be done. What, what are you looking at as priorities right now for the city for, for 2017? Well, I mean uh, the, the the operating budget. We've done the we've done the capital budget, as you uh, as you know. We passed that uh, in December. And the priorities in that budget is really about how do we grow the economy and uh, and and get on top of our infrastructure and and in 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 in, in large measure get on top of the afford- affordable housing issue and uh, I think those are the same parameters that we're going to look at the operating budget in. 
uh, you know, we want to be able to uh, to have enough money to do those those important works and uh, economic development being at the top of the list in terms of our future revenue stream. So, uh, as as many have said in the past, uh, we don't have a spending problem; we have a revenue problem, and that's uh, as a result of lost commercial industrial tax base over the uh, the many decades. And uh, and and getting that back is going to be a big challenge. One of the opportunities, actually, staring us in the face right now, is the uh, the U.S. steel lands the surplus U.S. steel lands that could be turned into, uh, you know, immediate shovel-ready uh, commercial industrial lands that we can land new businesses on today. Uh, so even though we're short on the commercial industrial lands over time, uh, that would be an infusion of ready, ready, readily available, well-serviced uh, industrial, commercial industrial lands that, uh, that can generate uh, some, some tax revenues and create employment in our community. So but you're not even benefit. at the table in those discussions yet. Well, we are. And, uh, oh, we, are we've, been, we've been pushing and, uh, and we've been meeting and we've been, uh, we've been saying that there's more to be had here. And so we've, uh, we've, we've let the province know and the ministers know that we're, we've got some ideas that will create better benefit for not only the pensioners but for the city of Hamilton. And we're working hard to put a proposal together and we're going to be bringing that to the province. Uh, but but who's going to own the land? I mean, because right now it's owned by U.S. Steel, obviously. And I, I understand the province's idea here about you know selling the land, et cetera, and, and putting some of the money towards pensions. And it all sounds wonderful to mm-hmm. a point. But uh, is the city a willing buyer at this stage? I, I, I mean, how do you pl- how do you fit into this? No, and there's there's not a proposed buyer in the in the scenario that they're they're laying out. They're proposing to create a a a, a public public board that will oversee the disposition of those lands, and that's a good thing. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't argue that that's a that's an approach that needs to be taken. Our 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 challenge is that they're taking a very short term approach on this. So they're they're suggesting that within a five year window they can get all of these lands disposed of and put into reuse. Uh, I think that's a very narrow view, and that minimizes the, the amount of value that's going to come out of this. So our, our approach is going to be a longer-term view, and it's still going to be a, a, an arrangement that maybe uh, we, we, we're going to advocate that the, uh, they allow the city of Hamilton to take full control of that, or in partnership with the province uh, through some sort of a board or agency. So in other words, the city would have some role then yes. in, in, in marketing the lands, in other words, to find out who's out there and who's Des- interested. Deciding how it gets disposed of, how it's going to be reutilized, uh, how, how, how new businesses can be landed there, and on, under what time frame, and all of that matters in terms of value, and that matters, you know, hugely to pensioners. I mean, if we're going to extract value out of this, we have to maximize that value. Doing it on a short-term fire sale basis isn't the right the right direction to take. So, we're hoping that we can uh, we can uh, put before the province some ideas that uh, they can they can sink their teeth in with data, with uh, with background data, and that's why it's taking a little time because we're, we're, we're creating the kind of data that will inform them as to the spillover effects of a short-term arrangement as opposed to a longer-term benefit. We've got about 30 seconds before the break here. Is there any discussion, because there is within the community here, as you know, mm-hmm. Mr. Mayor, about rezoning some of those lands and, and maybe turning some of it into parkland and some of it into residential. Uh, are, are, you, are you committed to, to employment lands for those, for those areas? Yeah, I mean, we had a, a study done by uh, Deloitte, if I recall. I'm not sure if it was Deloitte or, or another uh, one of the accounting firms. But they, uh, they came back and said that your, your, your best bet and the most reasonable thing to do is to, to maintain a commercial industrial uh, 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 zoning there. But, but you, could, uh, you could add, uh, you know, pre- prestige 
huge industrial, and uh, and you could add, uh, you know, community or open spaces in the mix of all of that. Uh, turning it into residential and or or park space, the uh, the remediation costs and the, uh, the, the 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 that whole process would take such an enormous amount of time and such an enormous amount of money that I don't think there's any reasonable measure that uh, you know would be great to do, but uh, I think the reasonableness of it is uh, is I think beyond reach for any level. Of the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.